Well, hoist with his own petard is a phrase from Shakespeare's play Hamlet. It's become a proverb, a sort of commonly used saying. But if you're wondering, if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself just what a petard is. What is a petard? Well, I looked it up. A petard is a small explosive device. And so the phrase literally means that a bomb maker is blown up, hoisted, lifted up off the ground by his own bomb. So it's a phrase about what we would call poetic justice, right? A phrase about ironic reversal of fortunes. And in our text today, this is a spoiler alert, Haman is going to be hoist on his own petard, though you know that already because you heard it in the reading. He's going to be hung or impaled on the very gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. So you'll remember that last week in chapter 6, after that extraordinary sleepless night for the king, Haman was seeking to have exe- you know, Mordecai executed right, the very next morning, and he ends up having to parade him around the town And placard before him, this is the man whom the king delights to honor. All of that now happened earlier on the day of this text. We're later on the same day. It's the day of Esther's second banquet with the king and Haman. Haman goes home in this this great distress. And his wife very strangely, sort of prophetically, tells him that if Mordecai really is of Jewish stock... That, she won't, that he won't be able to stand before Mordecai, and that his fall has already been set in motion. It's right at that point, at the end of chapter 6, that the king's eunuchs come, and they whisk Haman away to the second banquet, which is the opening of our text. So he's had a rather humiliating day. But, but he is still the prime minister, and he's hoping somehow to restore his dignity Right to retain his power to save face. Though surely, at this banquet, he's disoriented by the elevation of Mordecai and by the, his wife's strange prophetic counsel. Now Esther, of course, has no idea what almost happened to Mordecai. Whether she knows about Mordecai being paraded around the city in honor, we don't know. So that brings us to the beginning of chapter 7. We'll make two points. They are there on the back inside page of the bulletin, the request and the reversal. Request reversal. So the king and Haman go to Queen Esther's banquet. Again, she's now in charge. She's exercising authority. And they're drinking wine. Surely Esther intends this. She wants some alcohol in the king for the request she's about to make. Right? In one sense, we mentioned this at the very beginning of this series. The spine of the book of Esther could be you know, delineated as just a long list of banquets. In one sense, the book moves from unrighteous, wicked banqueting to joyful, righteous feasting, which would be one way to talk about the whole history of the world. Right? Banquets are at the center of the story, just like that banquet is at the center of the Christian faith. 
So now, remember, she has basically made the king commit in public twice to giving her what she wants. And here comes the third time. The king says, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. So this is the moment. There's no more stalling or delaying. Surely Esther is terrified. And surely she's practiced this a thousand times. If you want to get a sense of how scary this would be, there's a story from Herodotus, the Greek historian. He tells of an incident of a guy named Pythias, who had shown hospitality to the king, was something of a friend of Xerxes and had contributed money to Xerxes' war chest. And Pythias goes in and he asks Xerxes if he would release the oldest of his five sons from military service. And Xerxes is so angered, he has the boy cut in two. Right, so these are deep and erratic and dangerous waters. And so Esther wades in. And she starts like this. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you. Now, before we get to the request, notice, this looks like introductory you know, court protocol. You know, standard boilerplate language, but it is not. In many ways, this opening is the heart of her appeal here. Because what she's done, and the narrator makes this clear in the way she talks to the king, she's switched from third-person language, which she used previously with the king, to this much more intimate second-person language. If I have found favor with you. If it pleases you. So the very heart of her argument, the very heart of it, is the closeness, right? The bond that she shares with the king. The favor with which he views her, even if his favor for her has cooled off some. And so thinly veiled here is the attraction of her beauty. She cannot, right, she cannot, and she does not make a high moral argument here against genocide. It would be futile. The king is not opposed to it. So sometimes when you're in the empire, you argue on the empire's terms. In the world of sight, in a world of this sensual culture of the court where the king wants beautiful things to look at, Esther relies on the king's bond with her, which is in large part based on his visual desire for her. Right? His favor for her, we learned this in the early chapters, right? It is not because they sit around reading Homer together. Esther knows the power that she's wielding here, and she's playing every card she has. She's made him pre-commit. She's got him inquisitive and anxious and drinking. And now she appeals to their personal bond. 
Notice also what happens here. The king asks her, what is your petition? What is your request? He means it as one question. But she takes it as an opportunity to make two requests, which are now closely bound together. She says, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. That is my request. So her fate and the fate of her people are now fused together. That's what it means to be a mediator. Your fate and the fate of the ones you mediate for are bound. And now the king is reeling. Esther and her people are in mortal danger? She continues, right? She says, for, now, she says, for I and my people. Now, this should remind you of Moses. Here she becomes very mosaic. mosaic. And she's interceding for Israel before God. In chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses uses this exact language, pleading with the Lord, saying, I and your people. It's a wonderful insight into the way we should pray. Our prayers are always about us and the covenant community and its purposes before God. We are always praying, Lord, I and your people, I and your people, I and your people. For I and my people, she says, have been sold. It's a reference to Haman's wanting to enrich the king's treasury if he approved the plan. And here, and and notice how subtle this book is. It's not even explicit here, but probably here for the first time she reveals her Jewishness. For I and my people have been sold, she says. And then she quotes, she cites the written decree of annihilation to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. So just imagine Haman sitting there listening to this, thinking, Oh, I have inadvertently threatened to kill the king's wife. Haman knows for sure now that Esther is Jewish, for sure. And then she continues in what is a less than true, right, self-effacing exaggeration. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I would have kept quiet. Highly unlikely, but it works here. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I'd have kept quiet. It wouldn't have been worth you bothering with it. Again, this is psychologically sophisticated. She has a lot of leverage. She knows she has a lot of leverage, but she closes with the equivalent of something like this. I'm so helpless. I hate to even bother you with this. Don't you love it when people come to you and say, I hate to even bother you with this. <laughs> I, hate, I hate to even bother you with this, but this is all about your honor and your interests. So I don't want to even disturb you. Right? She's trying. Her whole goal has been to drive this wedge you know, between the king and his prime minister, which she needs to do. He's erratic. right? She has to direct his unruly anger away from herself toward Haman. Right? She knows he could probably care less about her people. So what's the tactic? Right? The tactic is she's 
banking on the fact that an attack on her will be seen as an attack on his honor. She knows or she hopes that it will provoke him to anger, and it does. Verse 5, King Xerxes, every word's important right here, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther. They are together now, king and queen, majesties, over against a now diminished Haman. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Now, there's a good deal that's puzzling here, as throughout the book. Has the king forgotten the decree? It appears so. I mean, that's understandable, I guess, right? He didn't ask any questions when the decree was proposed to him. He didn't ask about the people involved. He just took off his signet ring and gave it to Haman. And apparently he moved on. Hey, I do a lot of business. We issue a lot of decrees. I'm not a policy wonk. But seriously, who is he? Who did this? You're the only one who could do this, Xerxes, even if you delegate it. You're the edict maker. Did he think this was only an edict about enslavement and not destruction? You know, maybe that's why Esther alludes to this idea. If we had only been sold as slaves, I wouldn't bother you. Did he misunderstand the original decree? Does he know about the original decree, but does he not realize that Esther would be targeted? Or is he just trying to save face? We don't know. It is probably best to say he forgot the details and he wants to know whose idea it was and who's carrying it out. So finally, Esther has led the king on. She's created anger and suspicion. Here, she drives the wedge firmly and permanently into place. She says, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. She's she's maneuvered this situation to where that one sentence is a dagger. Very effective. Now he's an adversary, not just an adversary of the Jews. He's an adversary of the king's. He's he's gone after the king's wife. And the text tells you this. It says, Haman was then terrified before the king and the queen. Terrified before a Jewish. So that's the request. The second thing we want to look at is the actual reversal, which, of course, is already in motion. And here, the king gets up in a rage He leaves his wine. He goes out into the garden. And Xerxes has to be thinking something like this, because he's in a bit of a jam here. How can I condemn Haman for this threat to my queen and thus to my honor if I am the one whose signature is on the decree? It's a bit of a difficult spot, not to mention the fact that the decree is irrevocable. So he doesn't walk outside to cool off, though he is angry. He walks outside to figure out a way to save face and maybe save his queen's life. And you would think here that Haman should follow the king out and explain, look, I didn't know Esther would be a target. 
After all, this is the king's edict. But he doesn't. You certainly get the impression, right, for Xerxes, it's never a case of the buck stopping with him. It always stops with someone on his staff. And so Haman saw something, right? He saw the reaction. And so he knows his fate's already sealed. That flashing anger in Xerxes cannot be placated. Still, though, still, it's a big, big tactical mistake by Haman to stay behind alone with Esther. There was a regulation, a palace regulation, that men had to stay seven steps away from unaccompanied women in the palace. But Haman stays behind, and he stays behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. A few hours, just a few hours ago, he had to celebrate Mordecai the Jew in public. Now he must plead with Esther the Jew for his life. Very tough day for an anti-Semite. And Esther ignores his plea. You may find this hard to believe, but Esther has gotten criticism in the tradition, in the history of interpretation here, for showing no mercy. Text is silent. She will not show mercy, nor will she ask for mercy, because mercy is not hers to show. This is about the fate of her people, and this is a form of holy war against an Amalekite enemy, and she will succeed where Saul failed. To show mercy here would be treacherous, and she doesn't. And just as the king comes back from the garden, he sees Haman falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. They reclined on couches to banquet in this culture. And the word falling picks up all the key threads in the narrative. And it signals that this ironic reversal is taking place. Mordecai refused to fall before Haman. And then the lot fell against the Jews. And then Haman's wife said he was beginning to fall before Mordecai. And now Haman falls on the couch where Esther is reclining. He, of course, is just pleading for mercy. And the king sees it. And there's a lot of things you can say about Xerxes, but he's not this stupid. Right? He knows that Haman is not really, at this moment, making a pass at the queen. But the scene provides him an excuse for judgment. It provides him a way to get rid of Haman without reference to the decree that he signed. This is a piece of political opportunism. In his moral calculus, molesting the queen in the king's own house is worse than genocide anyway. And if there's another deep irony here, right? This same guy, Xerxes, he did not care about the sexual honor and dignity of his wife, Vashti, when he was the one assaulting it. But now he pretends to care about the same thing for Esther when someone else appears and is not actually assaulting her dignity. So it's just a pretext to charge Haman with rape or assault of the queen, which would be a form of treason. 
And so stack up another irony, right? He who falsely accused the Jews of treason. And it's important to remember this about Haman. He himself is now being falsely accused of treason himself. Soon as the king speaks, they cover his face, meaning he's a condemned prisoner. But the sentence, what the punishment will be, shall we say, is still up in the air. Which, yes, that was a pun. But, um, so then one Harbona, a eunuch, states, hey, um, Haman built this 75-foot pole near his house. He set it up for Mordecai, and then he tells the king, you know, that same Mordecai, O king, who spoke up to help you with that assassination plot. Clearly implying that Haman is sympathetic to the assassins. You know, just as an aside, you can notice with this guy, Harbona, the eunuch, that the Jews have actually created some goodwill inside the palace. This guy's willing to step in and defend Mordecai's honor. But you know what? It's not courageous goodwill because this guy was silent until he saw the tide turn. But he does come forth at this point and reminds the king about the poll. You can imagine Haman thinking, thanks, Harbona. That's very helpful that you're reminding the king about the gallows I had set up. Thanks for bringing it to his attention. And the king says, impale him on it. And they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's fury subsided. It's ironic, is it not, that Haman is executed for crimes he did not commit. He did not sexually assault the queen, and he did not knowingly or willingly target her life. Haman, hoist with his own petard now, once again, by the will of the king, as the book told us earlier, is truly elevated above all the officials. But of course, the danger, the crisis isn't over. The machinery of extermination remains in place. But this reversal at the heart of the empire is decisive, and it will result in the rescue of the people of God. So two things here as we close. We'll call them poetic justice and the petard. Say a couple words about each of these things. Poetic justice first. This idea of poetic justice, of some grand ironic reversal, is at the very heart of God's providence. In many ways, it's a principle built into the world by God's design. For example, you see it, you'll see it in many places, but here's Psalm 7. Psalm 7. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. That, that's Shakespeare, right? Uh, a couple thousand years earlier, right? Poised with your own petard. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. God has made the world in such a way, it's often hidden from us to be sure, but that evil is self-defeating. It has a kind of self-defeating quality. And we rejoice, right? We rejoice when we see dictators fall and despots and malicious enemies, right? Not because of malice, not because we take pleasure in others' misfortune, but because the human creatures have a deep God-given thirst for justice. We rejoice in the overturning of evil. 
When the Jews celebrate this story, they laugh and laugh and laugh and eat and drink. They dress up in costumes. But if we didn't rejoice in this sort of thing, we would be morally jaded. So this poetic justice has two sides, right? Pride goes before the fall. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But that means the humble will be exalted. God brings down Haman. He lifts up the Esthers and Mordecai's. And this is, again, at the heart of the gospel, which invades the world in Jesus Christ. You might remember Mary's words. She told us what her pregnancy meant when she said this, God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. We heard the same themes in the, uh, the gospel lesson from Luke chapter 6. Again, this might seem hidden from us. We only get an occasional glimpse of it. But we must believe God governs the moral order this way, even if it's largely deferred. Or life would be unbearable. Much of the Psalms are taken up with this. And this poetic justice is the key to the restoration of all things. Which brings me to the petard. The cross is the devil's petard. That's how we draw this story into the New Covenant. The pole he built for Jesus, upon which he himself is impaled. That is the poetic justice at the heart of reality. Augustine, the great 4th century church father, says this, the devil was defeated by his own victorious achievement. He was exultant when Christ died, and by that very death, the devil was conquered. And Augustine continues and says this, it as, it, it, it's as though he took the bait in a mousetrap. The mousetrap for the devil was the cross of the Lord. The bait he would be caught by, the death of the Lord. But Haman, like the devil, was a snake. And he, in all the Babylons that those like him administer, are doomed. They will be hoist on their own petards. We are sure of this. We are sure of it because it's built into God's providence, but it's built into the gospel because Christ was hoist, lifted up on the petard ordained for him by the Father. There, the king's fury and wrath against sin was done away with. Notice after, after Haman is hoist on his own petard, the text says, and the king's fury subsided. Hoist on the petard ordained for him by the father, ordained for the defeat of the principalities and powers, for the drawing of all men to himself, for the salvation of the world. A salvation from the preserved and protected Jews. So glory be to God, the God of this deep comedy, the God of the last laugh. Amen.